Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's time for a bit of underwater history. On the 24th of May 1945, the Supreme Commander of the German Navy, Admiral Karl Donitz, recorded the following words in his war diary. Wolfpack operations against convoys in the North Atlantic the main theatre of operations and at the same time the theatre in which air cover was strongest, were no longer possible. They could only be resumed if we succeeded in radically increasing the fighting power of the U-boats. That was the logical conclusion to which I came, and I accordingly withdrew the boats from the North Atlantic. We had lost the Battle of the Atlantic. To find out more about the U-boat's role in the Second World War, I spoke with Larry Patterson, who has written a new and importantly global history of the U-boat during the Second World War. Larry has developed a lifelong interest in U-boat history, inspired by both of his grandfathers, one of whom was an Anzac during the First World War and the other a Royal Navy stoker in the Second. He spent a period of time as a member of the Royal Navy Submarine Museum's Archive Working Group specialising in U-boat records, and his work challenges the accepted historical narrative of the role of U-boats in the Second World War. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to Larry as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is Larry. Larry, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, I was just sitting downstairs reading your book, um, okay. and my my kids were in the room, and uh, and I asked them to suggest two questions about German U-boats that they wanted answered. Uh-oh. Uh, for, <laughs> from the world expert <laughs> in German U-boats. Uh, they're slightly abstract, but very good. First question from my daughter, Beatrix Willis. She wants to know, what would happen if there was a murder on a U-boat? If there was a murder on a U-boat? Wow. Um... You know, I've never actually thought about that. There was, um, <laughs> we don't know. 
Is there a safe area people could be locked away in? Not really. I mean, there were there were always uh, you could lock them in the toilet. Although um, if a U-boat was outbound, it only had one functioning toilet, so that wouldn't be any use. No, there's no, no there's no brig as such or anything like that. Um, mm. uh, not on a combat U-boat anyway. So no, you'd be in you'd be in some trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a with a murderer. I think it's just because we've all watched murder murder on the Nile. Ah, um, right, so yeah, yeah. Bit of Agatha Christie and boats going on. And that the second question from my son, which is a cracker: uh, Would you prefer to be on a U boat with fifty versions of yourself or fifty versions of your worst enemy? Oh my god, uh, that's a toughie. You know, I, I'd probably narcissistic as it sounds. I'd have to say myself. There we go. Yeah, yeah that's what I think. I'd At say least I'd know the well. answer to the arguments. You know. <laughs> however dangerous that would be well, yeah. brilliant. well there we are so the podcast has been hijacked by my kids and, there we um, go we've got some good answers there um so let's talk about you and um your interest in u-boats and, and what you've come to learn about the u-boat war and how okay. that's uh, changed perspectives when, when did you first start becoming interested in in the under underwater world well um i've actually i've been interested in the second world war since i was a kid mainly you know, I grew up in the countryside in New Zealand, and there were a lot of Second World War veterans there. Um, my grandfather, one grandfather was in the Royal Navy in the Second World War. My other grandfather was in the Anzacs in the First World War. So it's sort of a topic that's always interested me, but it never really focused on U-boats, per se, until I lived in France in the late 90s. And I lived just outside of Brest, where the mm. first U-boat flotilla and the ninth were based. And um, I, I'm a diving instructor, so I was I was doing a lot of diving on wrecks there. Not so much U-boat wrecks in Brest, but the ships that used to shepherd them in and out of harbour, and minesweepers and so on. And um, a friend of mine, an American author, uh, John Gorn, who wrote a fantastic book about the Battle of Brittany, the Americans and the Germans, 1944, sent me uh, a um, microfilm of the, the first U-boat flotilla war diary. Um, handwritten war diary and I just I I had this old slide projector from my dad and I, I shone it through there and I just remember being you know absolutely fascinated by this document um, and it kind of took off from there really uh, yeah. and that was the genesis of my first book which which um, was the first U-Back until it just again is a, 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 their war diary really and, and expanding on it and since then it's just kind of grown um, you know, I've got I've got an interest in World War Two in general, the Wehrmacht as a whole, um, and it's sort of just almost by accident focused on the U-boats and the Kriegsmarine and so on. So, yeah. we should say for those of you who don't know that in Brest we have the the, the wonderful um, U-boat pens. Yes, there's some there's some fairly serious archaeology there which could inspire you to do U-boats. Well, tell us a little bit about the about the pens. The the pens are amazing. They're um when when the U-boats first used Brest Harbour and and there were several U-boat bases on the French Atlantic coast, which was a major advantage of the Germans having invaded France. Um, so they they established bases in Brest, uh, Lorient, um, Saint-Nazaire, La Rochelle, and Bordeaux. And obviously, in the beginning, in Brest um, and in all these harbours, the U-boats were just using the fishing ports or the naval port, whatever facilities were available, and. Um, a British bombing at that stage hadn't really sort of kicked off in a major fashion. But in Brest, um, it was also uh, the home of the Admiral Hipper called in there. And you had the Scharnhorst and the Gneisenau 
on the Atlantic coast and they became targets for the Royal Air Force. So, you know, it was really obvious that they needed this sort of shelter. So they built these enormous U-boat pens, which are, are really incredible structures. And they're all still standing because they're just so, so big, you know. Yeah, if there's if there's something that actually is a manifestation of, of uh, what a a evil genius in a Bond film yeah. might be operating out of. It's like that. So they're, That's um, it. let's describe them. It's, it's uh, a huge <laughs> concrete bomb-proof bunker open to the sea. Is yeah. that about fair? Pretty much, yeah. A monolithic construction. I mean, just enormous. Um, the one in Lorient's the most complex, actually a complex of three bunkers, one of which is open to the sea, and two of them were on land behind that one. And the U-boats used to be lifted up on a cradle and... Um, and moved in and out of the maintenance bunkers on land. Absolutely fascinating sort of piece of, you know, engineering there, um, built by the organisation Todd. And ironically, the British um, never took the opportunity to bomb it when it was under construction. They waited until it was constructed and then bombed it and you know, sort of destroyed the towns around it. And I think they, they put a hole, one hole in the breast bunker, um, which was actually done by the 617 squadron, you know, the dam busters. And they yeah. dropped a tall boy on it, and it actually penetrated the roof of the bunker. And there's photographs of um, uh, uh, once it had fallen to the Allies, troops standing next to this hole. It's absolutely incredible. The same kind of construction that you saw in V2 bunkers um, in near the Pas de Calais, you know. Um, but the, this sort of idea that those sort of um, bomb-proof bunkers had been built in the First World War, uh, but not to this scale. And obviously, they were on the the English Channel at that that point. So, yeah, really impressive, absolutely amazing. But the the one in Brest is still in use by the French Navy. Yeah, is it? Yeah, that's a, that is that's extraordinary. The um the, the fact that the British didn't bomb it seems a remarkable oversight. So obviously, it, the British had learnt of the threat of U boats from the First World War. So yes. the Second World War, the Germans are, have U boats. They're using them from early on in the war. They take France. That gives the them easy access to the Atlantic, therefore yep. it changes everything. Why, why didn't they, what was going on? Why didn't they attack? It's, it's a very good question. Um, it was kind of a matter of um, priority of targets more than anything else, and it just wasn't felt to be uh, that level of priority. They, they knew they were under construction, um, so it was a, it, it's, a, it's a very unusual omission. I mean, you know, Bomber Harris, was, he, he was a clever guy. You know, he, he wasn't an idiot or anything, so... Um, what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't know. Well, I mean, let's talk about the threat of the U-boats then mm. and kind of, um, to a certain extent, learning from the past. At the outbreak of the Second World War, um, were the British expecting there to be a U-boat threat? They, they were and they weren't. I mean, they, they sort of, they got punished quite badly in the First World War in 1917 when Germany had always, ex they'd sort of done limited sounds like a contradiction, limited, unrestricted campaigns and always then shied away from it. In 1917, when they were facing sort of starvation in Germany and the backs were to the wall, they, they unleashed the unrestricted submarine campaign by which U-boats could sink ships without warning um, within uh, whatever areas they prescribed to be a war zone. And um, it, it took a heavy toll in the First World War, but it was mastered by convoying. Um, by, by gathering the ships together and putting a, an effective escort around it, it kind of robbed the U-boats the opportunity to inflict that, that crippling blow. So there was this mistaken belief that U-boats had actually been mastered um, by the time the Second World War came around, even though you know Churchill was quite sort of paranoid about, justifiably so paranoid about the U-boat threat 
Um, but, I mean, Germany entered the war with only 57 U-boats, 57 combat U-boats, 30 of which were like Type 2 coastal boats. So it was sort of, it was perceived as a threat, but not the not the war-winning threat um, that it, it soon became known as. And also Britain had developed um, ASDIC, you know, uh, effective sonar and all this kind of thing. And they, they felt that they, even though they ironically had actually ignored anti-submarine warfare um, to, to a certain degree in the interwar period anyway, but, but they were aware of the U-boat, so they weren't as worried as they perhaps should have been, um, I think mm. it's fair to say. It says uh, it was interesting there what you said about um, just the coastal U-boats. There's obviously a, a, a danger when talking about U-boats to assume that you're talking about the same thing, that a U-boat was a U-boat. Can we just talk a little bit about the different designs of U-boats? How many yeah. different types were there at the start of the war? At the start of the war, there were there were three. There were three types. A Type 2, which is a small, um, basically a coastal U-boat, which actually did make it into the Atlantic. Um, but they could carry a very limited number of torpedoes. They had three torpedo tubes, um, a small crew, very uncomfortable on a long voyage. They were really designed for the North Sea. Um, then you had the Type 7, which was your medium-sized U-boat. And that's the one, that's, that's the famous one. That's the backbone of the U-boat fleet, the one made famous in Dust Bolt and so on and so on. Um, designed for the Atlantic, um, first actually went into action in the Spanish Civil War, uh, covertly, um, mm. and and ultimately um, carried carried the U-boat war. They, they ended up going as far afield as, you know, Freetown, West Africa, uh, the Caribbean, um, places like that, with, with the help of refueling um, either by other U-boats or by refueling U-boats, which were developed later in the war. Then there was, at the beginning of the war, there was a Type 1 um, and that was the large U-boat, and that was entirely unsuccessful design. They only built two, and they just didn't handle well. They weren't very good. So that was swiftly replaced by the Type 9, which was in development as the war began. And that became your long-range U-boat. Um, and that was the one that ranged uh, to the United States and the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, and ultimately made it as far as New Zealand. Mm, wow. Well. Yeah, I did not. I did not know that. There tell we me go. about the tell me about the New Zealand one. The New Zealand one was a type, what they call a Type Nine D two. It was a long range boat, and um, there were a certain number of U boats that were assigned to the Indian Ocean, not only to sort of attack uh, British shipping, but but they they then moved on to Penang um, eventually, and 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 founded a, a U boat station in the Far East, um, which kind of came on the back of this. Um, uh, transport missions by U-boat to to swap technology with the Japanese forces. Anyway, one of these boats, U-862, um, by a guy called Heinrich Tim, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to make a point. And in 1944, he sailed into the Pacific, made it down to, you know, New Zealand, um, chased a ship off the coast of New Zealand, and and basically missed his opportunity to fire and sank one ship off Sydney, which was the only ship sunk by U-boat in the Pacific. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So we talk about these designs. The, the follow-up question is pretty obvious, but were they all the same at the end of the war? Uh, how, how do you mean? I mean, were there, was there a significant design change and improvement in, in U-boats um, by, by the end of the war? Had, had, the, had the weapon fundamentally changed? Um, yes and no. The actual the, the combat U-boats that went into action, the bulk of them remained the same sort of boats that they entered the war with. 
Um, obviously, with mm -hmm. upgrades, um, various conning tower configurations, different flak weapons, a, a, an upgraded sort of technology, if you like, but essentially they were unchanged and they were obsolete. The Germans had, in the meantime, um, thrown a lot of effort into um, producing what's been known as the electro boats because a, a classic Second World War stereotypical U boat is, is not actually a submarine, it's more a submersible. They were designed to operate surfaced. They weren't actually designed to, to fight underwater. They were designed to be able to escape underwater if they needed to. But the most effective use of U-boats in the very early stages of the war by people, particularly like Otto Kretschmer and Eric Topp and people like that, the famous aces, they would stay on the surface where they had a good surface speed. They could outrun certain destroyers. They had a very low silhouette. And they were like torpedo carriers that would get in among these guys would actually penetrate inside a convoy, open fire, and then escape at speed. Now, the idea of the electro boats was they had a massive battery capacity, which meant that they operated predominantly submerged because by the latter stages of the war, U boats were forced underwater. They, they couldn't operate surface because of alloyed radar, which had completely misjudged its effectiveness and all this kind of thing. So they developed this uh, electro boat technology where boats would basically remain submerged for much longer, um, capable of firing at greater depths, um, using more advanced, sophisticated weapon guidance systems, so on and so on. Um, and it was a sort of a flawed project right from the word go because of the fractious nature of German industry under the Nazis. And um, the Type 21, the famous one, never really went into action. There were two war patrols with no effect. Um, um, and the rest of them, some were sunk uh, en route to Norway before they became operational, some were sunk in training, most were destroyed in shipyards. But there was a smaller version, a Type 23 electro boat, and it was actually one of those that fired the very last torpedo attack of uh, World War II and sunk the last uh, two ships of the war. Um, but it was, a, it was a small design, it was an effective submarine, but it, was, it carried two torpedoes, that was it you know, no more mm. than a midget submarine. So its effectiveness was never going to be that great. Um, they were also originally, part of the idea of them was they were going to be transferred to the Mediterranean and used in the Mediterranean. By the time they became um, available, that war was already lost. So, uh, so, so yes, it was a technological shift, but in the actual combat boats, it was a matter of patching up obsolete designs, really. Um, and they were, they were completely outmatched by the end of the war. Was there a kind of a uh, um, a decent match between what the boats were capable of and the strategy for using them? Um, mm, yes and no. I mean, have you ever uh, have you ever been on? There's a there's a U boat in Kiel, uh, a Type Seven U boat in Kiel. If you ever get a chance, you should visit it. Um, I have uh, not, you, but I will put it on my list. Oh, definitely. You nine nine five, and you go on that, and you. You know, you go through there and, I don't know, there's four or five people with you and it feels crowded already. Now, when you consider that one of these things had you know, up to 50 people aboard, um, the conditions for the crews were quite often horrendous, particularly later in the war when they were forced underwater to operate submerged using snorkels and so on. So they were asked to do things that it took quite a feat of endurance on behalf of the crews to be able to do so, if you like. Um, but but they you know to, to be fair the crews rose to the challenge I mean one of you know 
this, this type of boat ended up going as far afield as the Caribbean. So, you know, that that's quite something. Um, people would come back and they'd be in a hell of a state when they came ashore. But, but yeah, it, it sort of, what they were asked to do by, by Carl Dönitz, they were capable of doing, aside from the fact that the technology wasn't really up to the job after mm. i would say 1942 you know radar had sort of defeated their their surface possibility air power just absolutely hammered them and from then on or even earlier than then the german technological advancements they weren't leading the race they were reacting to allied advances you know um radar became a major problem so they developed uh, radar detectors of varying you know efficacy if that's a word, I think that's a word, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> um, you know, and, and then they tried flak boats and all this kind of stuff, and most of which didn't work. They were sort of stopgap measures for, um, for uh, what was really effective alloyed developments. You know, they, they really... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast drop the ball the Germans in, in many ways what about the global nature of the war I mean we've been uh, you mentioned here that they were they were in the Caribbean that they were in New Zealand um, when did, did this kind of major global approach to the U-boat war come about well um, this is this is one of the premises of the book really because people think of U-boats they think of the Battle of the Atlantic and by Battle of the Atlantic they think the Battle of the North Atlantic the North Atlantic convoy route um, routes between Britain and Canada and the United States. Um, and that's fair to say that that was like Dönitz's main sort of target, if you like. But he, as early as 19 sort of, actually 1940, he, um, he pushed a couple of U-boats towards the Mediterranean and there was one U-boat that entered the Mediterranean and actually made it back out again. Um, that was the only U-boat of the war to return from service in the Mediterranean. All the other ones that went into the Med stayed there and were sunk or destroyed in port. Um, he pushed boats down to West Africa, Freetown, which was a major merchant staging post 
um, for convoys coming up from South Africa. Uh, of course, once the United States was in the war, he, he, he launched an attack on the American East Coast, um, which is famously known as Operation Palkenschlag. But this is, this is like a perfect example of the, the reality of the U-boat war because, it, you know, Operation Drumbeat, Palkenschlag, you know, it's this major offensive on the US. You take it on the greatest industrial power there is and you do it with six U-boats. You know, mm. so so you you're not going to actually you know, you'll frighten the hell out of them, and you will cause some havoc. There's no doubt about it. But you know, you're not going to cripple the United States with an initial wave of six U-boats, which is whittled down to five by one aborting prematurely. But then you know, um, there were attacks on Canada. The, the most successful attacks of the war were actually off West Africa, and the most successful single offensive of the war, concerted offensive by U-boats, was. Um, a small number of Type Nines in the Caribbean who were targeting the oil transport from Venezuela, um, and they were they were uh, gathered around to Aruba and Trinidad and that kind of area, um, and that's actually where the greatest single yeah single successes by U-boats were. Um, they went into the Indian Ocean. They made it as far as um, the Arabian Sea. Um, once they were in the Indian Ocean, when they were, f they were hunting around South Africa and Madagascar, there were, there were quite a lot of successful missions, but, but ultimately, you know, with British code breaking and, and British naval power, they were defeated there too. And most of the U-boats that ended up based in the Far East achieved very little um, um, for, for what was massive voyages. I mean, this is the other thing. A U-boat that sailed as far as the Indian Ocean, if it returned to France, you know, it, it would take six months out of that U-boat's life, if you like, because not only the voyage itself, which one of them was a record-breaking record voyage of months at sea, but once they're back, the, the, the rest and recuperation, recuperation of the crew, the maintenance, and so on and so on. So it was a major commitment of very scarce resources because he didn't have the U-boat numbers he wanted until not 1943, by which time, in my opinion, Germany had already lost the war anyway, you know, um, so it was never going to work. Yeah. The um, mention of the code, Enigma code, is interesting. For those of us who haven't heard about that, could you just talk a little bit about the German submarine code? Well, the Enigma machine was used by all German armed forces. Um, uh, they all had their, their separate code nets. The Luftwaffe had this, their code net, the, the, the army, the Waffen-SS, so on and so on. And the Kriegsmarine had these Enigma codes. They looked like a typewriter. They, they, they're in a box. Um, very sophisticated coding machine. Brilliant invention. Um, and the U-boats had their specific code net, you know, or their, their style of... Um, encoding and sending messages. And in the beginning of the war, um, Polish code breakers had already made um, advances into the army and so on and so on, and certain elements of the Navy, but the U-boat the um, code net was relatively secure. Um, but part of the downfall was they, they also had, um, they had various uh different keys like there was one key that you both used when they're in home waters when they're about to go in and out of port well that was broken by the allies but the combat u-boats remained quite sort of secure but in um 1941 of course um not only had various parts of enigma machines been captured from combat u-boats but they captured an entire enigma um from u110 and um and that was it basically once the enigma codes were read 
because of the nature of how U-boats were deployed, it required a centralised control from Carl Dönitz in charge of the U-boat fleet. And he would allocate, you know, uh, an area on a grid chart, a naval grid chart, of where the U-boats would operate and all this kind of thing. Um, and that required a lot of uh, radio traffic and information. Once the Allies had actually broken that code, they knew exactly where the U-boats were. Um, and they managed to not only reroute convoys around it, but they, you know, sometimes they targeted certain U-boats, like when, when they developed these refueling U-boats, which were crucial for long-distance missions. Um, they targeted them, sank them all, and so on and so on. Um, so, and the Germans had a mistaken belief that the Enigma was impenetrable. And it was, a, it, was a brilliant, it was a brilliant machine. I mean, it was a very, very clever piece of engineering. But it had been penetrated. The Battle of Al Alamein on, on, on land, it was, you know, helped enormously by the fact that Montgomery knew exactly what was going on on the other side. I, I think the Germans, by and large, during the Second World War, you know, um, I think it's fair to say that in many ways, the Allies, had never. there's never been a war fought by someone that knows exactly what's going on on the other side to such a degree as what the Allies had in, in the Second World War, which is hats off to, you know, the Polish cryptographers, but also Bletchley Park, who, who put the finishing touches on all this, and Alan Turing and people like that, which is a fascinating story in itself, you know. The Germans didn't have any 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 inkling that this was going on? They did. They sort of, you know, people kept ringing alarm bells, doing it himself was sort of going, hang on a minute, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is a bit odd. I mean, there was one example of three U-boats that met in, a, in an island in the middle of, you know, middle of nowhere to sort of um, swap equipment and so on. And the British turn up, you know, the, a submarine turns up, just happens to be there and then. It's like, well, what are the odds, you know? So, yeah. But they basically, there was an admiral in charge of... Um, in charge of ciphers, essentially, and he kept uh, doing these investigations, and he operated on the principle that there's a certain amount of arrogance there. He just sort of thought, no, there's no way they could break it. So they operated from that standpoint rather than being devil's advocate and going, I think they've broken yeah. it. How could they have done this? You know, um, so it was misplaced sort of arrogance, if you like. Um, yeah, and let's talk about the U-boats at the end of the war. I've got um, uh, an order from Donitz here. Every enemy vessel which serves the landing, even if it ferries only half a hundred sailors or a tank, is a target demanding the total commitment of the boat. It is to be attacked even if one's own boat is put at risk. When it is a matter of getting at the enemy landing fleet, no thought must be given to the danger of shallow water or possible mine barriers or any other consideration. Every man and every weapon of the enemy destroyed before the landing reduces the enemy's chance of success. But the ah. U-boat, which inflicts losses on the enemy at the landing, has fulfilled its highest task and justified its existence, even though it stays there. That's, um, that's, there's a lot going on there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's an awful lot going on there. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, a, that's quite an infamous, uh, an infamous um, episode in, in U-boat history, really, which people still argue about to this day, you know, people who weren't there. Um, because essentially uh, that was to counter the D-Day landings, um, Normandy in 1944. And... Dönitz, you know, in that kind of fiery way that that um, that that a lot of the German leaders, particularly Hitler, um, did. They they demanded total commitment, total obedience, total this, that, and the other, and and it was thought to inspire their troops. Where where it went slightly wrong was it's been interpreted as an order to ram your U-boat into the enemy, 
Um, and there's, there's lots of differences of opinion about whether um, that was actually given as an order because one U-boat commander called Herbert Werner who wrote a fantastic autobiography called Iron Coffins, in it he relates that he was at a meeting of the first U-boat flotilla officers when their commander, Werner Winter, um, gave that order from Dönitz and basically someone said to him, said, does that mean that we should, you know, if all else fails, we should ram the enemy? And he said, yes. Now, I've spoken to a man called Hans Rudolf Rosing, who was what they call FDU West, and he was in charge of all the logistics of the Western U-boats based in France. And he used to go around these U-boat bases and, you know, he looked after them when they were ashore. Not he didn't have operational control when they were at sea, that was handled by Dunitz, but he had a control over the repairs, you know, where they were stationed ashore and all this kind of thing. Very important guy in the U-boat chain of command. And I asked him, because he's often blamed for giving this order to ram U-boats, and he told me that at no point did they actually say, ram your U-boats into the enemy, but they did say, total commitment they say you know you have to take chances because basically the u-boats were being used as an anti-invasion measure for which they were completely unsuited um they were they were going to be outmatched by the enemy and it turned out to be exactly that a lot of u-boats they left the french ports to attack the normandy fleet and achieved absolutely nothing except most of them were sunk um so it's a bit of a, you know, it's this kind of, it's a bit of a, a grey area, that one. As I say, people still argue about it, but, you know, from the horse's mouth, I got this kind of thing that, that Dönitz didn't believe in suicide missions. Um, it was it was that kind of Third Reich rhetoric, you know, sort of complete commitment, backs to the wall, you know, last last shell, last man, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's an extraordinary moment as well. And also this, this, uh, this next one here, I thought this was a fantastic paragraph. Uh, this is from Donitz himself. My U-boat men, six years of U-boat war lie behind us. You have fought like lions. A crushing material superiority has forced us into a narrow area. And continuation of our fight from the remaining bases is no longer possible. U-boat men, undefeated and spotless, you lay down your arms after a heroic battle without equal. We remember in deep respect our fallen comrades who have sealed with death their loyalty to the Fuhrer and the fatherland. Comrades, preserve your U-boat spirit with which you have fought courageously, stubbornly and imperturbably through the years for the good of the fatherland. Long live Germany. Um, Give us a bit of the context of what's going on here with this final that, message to the U-boat yep, crew. That's, that's the end of the war, basically. That's um, that's when when Dunitz gave the order to cease fire, uh, and you know he kind of he, by this stage he was no longer uh, simply commander of the U-boat service. He was commander of the entire German navy, and um, and yeah, you know, the war was lost. He he actually concentrated. Uh, a lot of resources on in those last days to evacuating civilians and troops from from the east in the Baltic and all this kind of stuff. There was a uh, this was the tail end of a campaign he'd mounted inshore in British waters, where the U-boats were told to go close inland and operate using snorkel devices so they could remain submerged and um, attack British shipping in there, which was initially quite successful. It took the British by surprise, um, but again, it was never going to to alter the balance of the war. The war was lost on land. Um, the, in the air, it had been lost years before. And basically, he was ordering his troops to, to, to cease fire. 
Um, and in his opinion, the Navy had never done anything to blemish its record in, in combat or anything like that, which is why naval records are so uh, available. They were actually protected in a, in a castle called Castle Tambak and handed over to the Allies intact. Um, or virtually intact, <laughs> uh, because because Dönitz considered that the Navy had nothing to hide, nothing to fear from the victors, and so on and so on. So yeah, that was his last sort of big message to the to his men. Um, you know, nearly three quarters of the U-boat service were killed, uh, and they they continued to sail in in obsolete machines. They knew they were, you know, their, their backs were truly against the war, and their their odds of survival were very slim. And yet they did continue to sail, and and part of this is a legacy. A hangover from the First World War, where where the revolution in the fleet actually kicked off, you know, um, a major mutiny at the end of the First World War, and he was determined this wouldn't happen in the Second. You know, the the, the navy would fight with honor and end with honor and all this kind of thing. So that's that's the context of that. Yeah, um, and of course at, at that stage he was also the head of Germany too, because Hitler was dead. So yeah. Yeah, um, he's an interesting character, and he lived until 1980. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fascinating sort of guy. Um, you know, a mass of contradictions, like a lot of these people who, you know, by virtue of being such a high-ranking officer in the Third Reich, you know, there's 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 mighty skeletons in them that are cupboards, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, he was, you know, he was he was kind of revered by his men to a degree, not often seen well i don't think that's necessarily true but he was definitely revered by his men they called him the lion you know um and he he made a big deal in, in the early days when he was he was in charge of the u-boats and not the navy you know he'd be if at all possible he'd be present when u-boats came home he would inter he would debrief officers personally and he wanted that personal touch with his men and it definitely paid off you know yeah. um, but he seems to have sidestepped all you know the hunting for for People associated with with Nazi Germany released in released from prison in fifty six, then retired and just lived in northwestern Germany. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's it's it's such a complicated subject, isn't it? I mean, this kind of idea that you know he he sort of put forward the idea he didn't know what's going on in concentration camps and so on and so on. And you sort of think, well, it's not true. You know, um, Eric Tock actually asked him when he came out of prison, and he said, and. And apparently doing it broke down in tears. And, and you sort of think, you know, he was a guy who, um, I think it's fair to say he was a, he was a military man. He wasn't, he wasn't a political animal, but he was also, at the same time, he subordinated himself completely to the nation. And at that time, the nation, it was very, I think the word is autocratic, isn't it? It was, it was Hitler. Hitler was the embodiment of the nation. And I remember... Both Eric Topper and another officer, Jürgen Ersten, who was a fascinating guy, um, Ubo officer, he told me that Hitler had the ability to make Dönitz feel, in his own words, like a little sausage, like like a, like an in insignificant man. He allowed him to swim in a soup of emotion and all this kind of thing. That's the way he put it. Um, so he he you know, um, for example, when when the July twentieth plot, when people tried to kill Hitler. You know, Dönitz was one of the first people on the radio sort of going, these traitors, these traitors, you know, we're going to root out these Jewish Bolshevik traitors and all this kind of stuff. Um, was he anti-Semitic? I don't really know. Probably, probably to, to a degree that a, a lot of a lot of those guys were just by virtue of the times. I, I, again, I'm not apologising for the man. But 
Mm. But he was and, certainly unrepentant of what of what he did in the war and, and, no, and yeah. stood by it all, you know. Yeah, I mean he um he was actually found guilty of waging aggressive warfare, which is quite sort of weird, isn't it? In at Nuremberg. And one of the men that appeared in his defence for his not only giving the infamous Laconia order, but for waging unrestricted warfare was actually Admiral Nimitz of the US Navy. And he went in and he said, the minute we declared we're on war on Japan, oh no, sorry, the minute Japan attacked us and we, you know, then declared war, we waged unrestricted warfare. We just, we went for it with our submarines and sank anything that we could find that was Japanese. So one of the staunch defenders in the Nuremberg trials was an American Admiral, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, he, he sort of, the U-boats, they really, they didn't have anything to apologise for, really. Um, uh, I don't think so, anyway. I mean, you know, it's a it's a bold statement because I imagine a lot of merchant mariners would, would take issue with that, you know. Um, when you're talking about something like this and you're dealing with statistics and numbers and stuff, it's hard to imagine the horror of being in a ship that's torpedoed out of nowhere, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's that's war. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Larry, it's been fascinating talking to you, and thank you very much indeed for your time. And I hope you've inspired lots of people to find out more about the U-boat war. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please don't just listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Please also check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube channel, where you will find some truly magnificent new things to see, not least the quite brilliant new videos we've made filming the world's best ship models with the latest camera equipment. There's also some fantastic animation work to be seen there. Now, this podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research, so do please take the time time to check out everything that both of those wonderful institutions have been up to. You can find the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History Centre and Archive at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up to enjoy all of the numerous perks of membership including four copies of the printed Mariner's Mirror Journal every year, online access to over a century's worth of maritime history scholarship, online seminars and you can even come to dinner on board HMS Victory. Lucky you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 